Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Backdating Prophecy. I've got a lot of really, really interesting material to cover with you tonight. But before we get to tonight's podcast, I have a special announcement that I want to make on behalf of my good friends, Alan and Katie Mount at Marriage on a Tightrope. You may know of them. I hope you know of them. They have a wonderful podcast that's been going on for about two and a half years now, dealing with mixed faith marriages. It is called Marriage on a Tightrope. It can be found at Mormon Discussion Podcast. Org, the same host website from which I podcast. And I'm pretty sure you can also find it at marriageonatightrope.org. Now, as I say, Alan and Katie are a mixed faith couple. Alan has effectively left the church, the LDS church, back in 2017. But Katie, that's Katie with two T's, Katie Mount remains faithful. How faithful is she? Well, I'll tell you how faithful Katie is. She's so faithful that she will not even listen to Radio Free Mormon. That's how faithful she is. And I hope that after giving them this plug for this upcoming seminar that they're doing, that she will break down and listen to at least one episode of Radio Free Mormon. That's not too much to ask, is it Katie? I guess she won't hear that since she doesn't listen. Anyway, hopefully Alan can tell her. But here's what's going on. Marriage on a Tightrope has teamed up with marriage and family therapist Natasha Helfer Parker in order to produce a special workshop. It's a six-week online course, an online workshop specially designed for couples in mixed-faith marriages to learn tools to help fortify their mixed-faith marriage. Katie and Alan have developed this course over the last two and a half years with their real-world, boots-on-the-ground experience trying to deal with and navigate a mixed-faith marriage. And the last I hear, yes, they are still married. This course will be clinical and practical in its approach. It does not lend itself to bias to either side of belief. In other words, if you go to this and you are the person in the marriage who is faithful, this isn't going to be trying to get you out of the church. And if you are the person in the marriage who is not faithful, this is not going to be trying to get you to go back in the church. Instead, this course is respectful of both sides of belief. And the idea is to help strengthen your marriage and help you navigate what is a difficult situation for many people today. Some of the topics that will be covered include understanding what a faith transition is and is not, navigating change in behaviors, and also mixed faith parenting and sex and intimacy, and more. This course begins on April 13th. Once again, it will be done online so you don't have to worry about getting any nasty flu bugs by participating. To learn more information about this course, please search for the online event titled Workshop on a Tightrope. That's the name of this seminar, Workshop on a Tightrope. It can be found at the Eventbrite website. That's Eventbrite, E-V-E-N-T, Bright, B-R-I-T-E. That's one word, Eventbrite. Or you can email Alan and or Katie at marriageonatightrope at gmail.com. I know they've been working very hard on making this an excellent course. They've got a lot of great experience that they want to share with you and to help people out. They've been helping a lot of people out already. This is an effort to make it more widely available. The insights they have and the tools they can show you and that have actually worked for them in helping you navigate a mixed faith marriage. Okay, there's my plug for Marriage on a Tightrope and their seminar. I hope you appreciate that, Alan and Katie. And Katie, you really should give Radio Free Mormon a try. All right, now, in the words of Bill Real, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Once again, tonight's episode at Radio Free Mormon is titled Backdating Prophecy. 
Today's date is March 18th, 2020, and we are currently in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. I am broadcasting to you from my underground bunker here in the state of Washington, which is ground zero insofar as the coronavirus outbreak in the United States. You may have noticed that my voice is a bit hoarse. I do not repeat, do not believe that I have the coronavirus. I will say that a week ago Friday, about 12 days ago, I did get my usual annual allergy flare-up, which happens every year at this time, when the weather begins to turn warmer and the pollen from the evergreen trees starts to flow. That combined with a head cold has caused me to be coughing a great deal over the last week and a half, with the result that my voice sounds the way it does now. I hope that you'll bear with me and my voice for the duration of this podcast, and hopefully my voice will continue to bear up, and I'll be able to get through tonight's message. Tonight's message has to do with prophecy, and specifically the backdating of prophecy. We live in an amazing day when the president of the LDS Church, Russell M. Nelson, is widely being reported among the Latter-day Saints as having actually predicted the coronavirus. Now, technically, he didn't actually predict the virus. He didn't predict an overflowing scourge. But what he did say last general conference in October is that the next general conference, i.e. the one that's coming up here in a few weeks in April of 2020, would be different from any conference that we had ever held. Now, at the time, and in context of what he was saying, most people thought he was talking about the fact that it was the 200th anniversary of Joseph Smith's first vision, and we'd be having a celebration of it. And the celebration of it would be unlike any general conference that had ever been held. It is only in retrospect that many Mormons are understanding his words to have a great deal more importance than that, and that, in fact, it was going to be different from any general conference because there would be no people in the General Conference Center in April of 2020. There would be no people in the audience. They will apparently have the leaders of the church in the Conference Center. They will apparently have the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Wait a second, that's the uh, Temple Choir at Tabernacle Square. Is that right? The Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. That's the one. That's the new name. They will be present in the Conference Center, but there will be no audience in the Conference Center, and this will be the first time that this has happened since 1984 when Elder Ronald E. Pullman was required to go back into the empty tabernacle and retape his talk with a cough track so that it would be more suitable for public consumption than the talk he gave originally. But not only did Russell M. Nelson say this conference would be different from any other previous conference, he also said that we needed to take our vitamins and get our rest. At the time, we thought that was just a funny saying about how it is that he's changing things and receiving revelation from God and that we need to be ready and rested in order to implement those changes which were coming on a daily basis. But no, now we realize he was giving us a prescription of getting rest and taking our vitamins so that we would be prepared to withstand the coronavirus. Now, there may be no medical connection between getting rest and taking vitamins and being somehow able to better withstand the ravages of the coronavirus. But only the faithless would think thoughts like that. It's clear that what he meant was the coronavirus is coming and we need to get rested and take our vitamins. And in case you think I'm making this up, let me quote to you from an email that was sent out by a local bishop to the members of the ward. 
This was sent out to members of the ward to notify them that the Seattle Temple and the Vancouver Temple are currently closed, that church meetings in the ward buildings are temporarily postponed, and that all five sessions of General Conference will be broadcast to homes only. There will not be attendees allowed at the conference center, and the broadcast will not be shown at stake centers. This particular bishop, who shall remain nameless here, closed this email by saying, As the stake president relayed in Ward Conference, if you are not feeling well, or even if you just have anxiety relating to the coronavirus, don't feel guilty about staying away from meetings for the time being. The Lord, through His church, has helped us prepare for times such as these by instituting a home-centered, church-supported curriculum. This has strengthened my testimony. This is the bishop speaking. This has strengthened my testimony that this is his church and it is led by a prophet, exclamation point. So not only did President Nelson saying that we needed to rest and take our vitamins, predict the coronavirus, and not only did his saying that this general conference would be unlike any other, predict the coronavirus, but apparently even the new program of reducing church from three hours to two and then instituting a home-centered, church-supported curriculum during the third hour, i.e. families are supposed to study the Come Follow Me manual at home during what would be that other third hour that is now available to them on Sundays due to the shortened church meeting schedule. All of this was done with an eye toward the coronavirus and the fact that people would need to be staying at home and not going to church. So for this bishop, this has strengthened his testimony that this is God's church and it is led by a prophet. Now, as I say, some people are less than overwhelmed by the accuracy of these predictions. Some people say, well, these are very general kinds of predictions. They're not really even predictions at all. Some people would say that the shortening of the church program was done because people don't like going to church for three hours and they haven't liked it for a long time. And so the church finally shortened the church from three hours to two hours, something that had been in the works for many years leading up to this, and that it actually didn't have anything to do with the coronavirus in early 2020. Those same people would look at the comments by President Nelson about getting your rest and taking your vitamins as having nothing to do with the coronavirus, and also his statement that this coming general conference would be unlike any other had nothing to do with the coronavirus. And not to get too technical, but a little bit of LDS history here will help. Back in 1919, the Spanish flu was another pandemic that was sweeping the world and would end up actually killing more people than all the casualties in World War I combined. As I say, the Spanish flu was sweeping the world, including Utah. And because of that Spanish flu, General Conference for April of 1919 was postponed for two months until June of 1919. In addition to that, in October of 1957, General Conference was completely canceled. And once again, this was because of a serious flu bug that was causing a lot of people to get sick. So instead of having everybody come to the tabernacle for General Conference, the First Presidency took the extraordinary step of canceling General Conference for October of 1957. So to the extent that people are interpreting President Nelson's statement from last General Conference that the April 2020 General Conference would be unlike any other conference before, to the extent that they're interpreting that as meaning that the coronavirus would cause it to be not exactly canceled, but transmitted electronically without attendees showing up in person. As I say, to the extent that people are interpreting his words that way, it's not technically 
Correct. Because this sort of thing has happened before on two prior occasions in 1957 and in 1919. Now, if President Nelson had actually said six months or a year ago that the General Conference of 2020 would have to be canceled. In other words, people would not be allowed to attend the General Conference because there would be a desolating sickness that would be a worldwide pandemic, that it would start in China and that it would rapidly move throughout the world and cause people to need to shelter at home and not attend church. If President Nelson had said all of that, that would have been remarkable indeed. And in fact, I think the whole world would have to stand up and take notice that really there might just be a prophet of God alive upon the earth today, a prophet with a direct pipeline to God and through whom God can reveal knowledge of the future, which was predicted in advance, in detail, and with some specificity. Now, let's suppose that we had the ability to go back and take those comments that President Nelson made, the comments that are somewhat generic, that are not really predictions, talking about how this conference of April of 2020 would be unlike any conference that the church had ever seen before. And if we were able to go back and insert words into his statement and insert the words about there being an overflowing sickness, a virus that would come out of China and would be a pandemic throughout the world. And this is what would cause April 2020 General Conference to be so different from any other conference in history. If we were able to do that in such a way that nobody knew that we had actually gone back in time and put that prediction in his mouth before the coronavirus occurred, that would be a backdated prophecy. In other words, we would go back in time, we would make up a prophecy of something that had already occurred, but we would put it in President Nelson's mouth before it occurred. That's a backdated prophecy, and that's what the subject of tonight's episode is about. And let's further suppose that a lot of time had gone by, and now it's not just 2020, let's say it's 2025, 2030, or even 100 or 200 years, or even 1,000 years from now. And people went back, scholars went back, and they looked at the historical record. And by that time, the fingerprints of what we had done of backdating this prophecy and putting it in President Nelson's mouth before the coronavirus, the fingerprints of what we did were vanished. They could no longer be found. All that they could find, these scholars of the future, is the prophecy that President Nelson allegedly made prior to the coronavirus, which amazingly predicted it in detail. That would be amazing. That would be remarkable. That would be a classic example of a backdated prophecy. Well, I go into all this detail to introduce to you what a backdated prophecy would look like because the evidence is, and scholars generally agree, that this has occurred in the past. It has occurred in books that are now in the Bible and that there are many prophecies or at least a handful of prophecies that we can find in the Bible which are amazingly predictive, that were put in the mouths of people who lived before the events happened that they're prophesying, and that came to pass just as they predicted. These are instances where scholars, Bible scholars, believe that people who lived after the events that were prophesied went back and did just what I was talking about, hypothetically, with President Nelson. They went back and they rewrote or wrote new books 
in the name of the earlier prophet who lived before the event that was prophesied, they put in the detailed prophecies about what would happen. And lo and behold, now this prophet suddenly looks like he had the ability to predict with clarity, with specificity, with amazing foreknowledge, the events that would transpire and thus showing them to be true prophets of God. Now, I have been familiar with this idea of backdating prophecies for many years now. And the way I became aware of this phenomenon was through my studies of the Bible, which I began and which I immersed myself in approximately 15 years ago. It was at that time that I was teaching the gospel doctrine class in my local ward. And when I was called to be the teacher in 2006, we were in the middle of studying the Old Testament. At that time, I decided I wanted to really, really get into what the scholars had to say about the Bible. And I listened to a number of classes that were tape recorded, a number of classes by Bart Ehrman, who is a professor and a scholar of New Testament studies. And he has written a number of books on the subject, many of which I got and I read. I was fascinated by the subject. Also, as part of my study materials, I got a new Oxford annotated Bible. It's the New Revised Standard Version. It also has the Apocrypha in it. It has a lot of notes in it. It has the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible or the NRSV, sometimes how it's abbreviated. And on top of that, I got the Oxford Bible Commentary, which is a one-volume commentary. It's over 1,300 pages long, and it's got a lot of writing on every page and it goes through every book in the Old Testament, every book in the New Testament, and every book in the Apocrypha. And they have different experts on the different books writing detailed commentary on every verse or virtually every verse in all of the books of the Bible. And as I say, it was during this time period that I first became acquainted with the idea of a backdated prophecy because these do occur in the Bible. Now, as I was doing research, For this episode, I found out that even though I call it just backdating prophecies, there are a number of more technical terms for this concept, one of which is post-diction. That's one word, post-diction. It's a strange-sounding word, but it's a word that is created to contrast with a prediction. In a prediction, we are predicting something that will happen in the future. Post-diction means you're sort of predicting it after the fact, post-diction, after the fact, you're writing this down and you're saying something that happened after it happened as if you're predicting it, but actually you're doing it after the fact. So it's called post-diction. There is a similar phrase called post-shadowing. Once again, that's one word, post-shadowing, and that's in contrast to foreshadowing. Foreshadowing is to suggest something that's going to happen. Post-shadowing is suggesting something that has happened as if you're doing it beforehand. So these are different words that describe the same kind of phenomenon. There's even a Latin phrase for this concept. And the Latin phrase is vaticinium ex eventu. So obviously this is a very common phenomenon if there are so many different terms to describe it. But for purposes of this podcast, I'm just going to stick to backdating prophecy. Now, first off, let's go to Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 28 because Isaiah has a remarkable prophecy of an individual who would allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple of Jerusalem. 
Now, that's an amazing thing because that didn't happen until about 200 years after Isaiah lived. Isaiah lives in the 8th century, and he was alive during the Assyrian conquest of 721 BCE. That's before the Common Era. So that is at the time that the real Isaiah actually lived. Over a hundred years later, in approximately 600 BCE, the Babylonian Empire now came in and took out the kingdom of Judah and took them into captivity in Babylon. And the Jews were in captivity in Babylon for approximately 70 more years. And at the end of the Babylonian Empire, technically the Neo-Babylonian Empire, but we don't have to go into those details here. The Babylonian Empire was overthrown by the Persian Empire. And the Persian king, the king of the Persian Empire at this time, so this is around 530 BCE. I'm just speaking in rough approximations at this point, but around 530 BCE, the king of Persia allowed the Jews to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple. And this Persian's king name was Cyrus, C-Y-R-U-S. So the amazing thing is that Isaiah, who lived almost 200 years before this happened, not only prophesies that this person will rise up and allow the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild it and rebuild the temple, he even gives the name of the Persian king who would do this. And he writes down his name as Cyrus. This is from Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 28. Speaking of the Lord saying of Cyrus, giving the name Cyrus, he is and will accomplish all that I please. So this is God talking of Cyrus saying that Cyrus will accomplish everything that God wants him to do and will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. How is it that Isaiah, who lived 200 years before Cyrus was even born, could prophesy so accurately that Cyrus would be raised up by God and would allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem after their captivity to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple? Well, from a faithful perspective, this is God revealing his will with specificity to his prophet. This is a prophet of God predicting the future by the power of God. From a secular perspective, Virtually all Bible scholars are unanimous in the idea that this prophecy was not actually written by Isaiah at all. Instead, it was written by an individual who lived after Cyrus had allowed the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And he had written these words in the name of Isaiah and added them to the book of the original Isaiah as if he were Isaiah. And then over time and over hundreds of years, those fingerprints of what he did were removed so that it was impossible to tell from this vantage point that this is what had happened. But there are fingerprints that are still left, fingerprints that scholars of the Bible have noted, and they've noted this for several hundred years now. This is not a recent development in Bible studies. And this gets into the idea of Deutero, Isaiah, which some of you may have heard of. Deutero meaning just second Isaiah, that there was a second Isaiah who wrote this material. Now, many biblical scholars have noticed differences between the first 39 chapters of Isaiah and those that appear after them. The first 39 chapters end up being attributed to the original Isaiah, and the chapters after it end up being attributed to an anonymous author 
who wrote in the name of Isaiah and added his words to Isaiah's book. The earlier chapters can be convincingly dated to the 8th century BCE and the legendary prophet Isaiah, but from chapter 40 on, there is a noticeable shift in the tone of the language used. So some people may look at this and say, well, the reason the secular scholars think that there must have been a Deutero-Isaiah is just because they don't believe that God could actually allow Isaiah to prophesy of something that would come in the future. Well, that may be part of it, but there's a lot more to this textual analysis than just this prophecy. For example, the earlier chapters are full of judgment, while the later ones are more comforting. On top of that, Hebrew words that are used frequently in the early chapters of Isaiah do not appear at all in the later chapters of Isaiah. So in other words, there's other textual reasons to look at these two different sections of Isaiah and think that there are different authors for them. Because of this, the text in Isaiah from chapter 40 onward has been called Deutero-Isaiah. And it is believed that Deutero-Isaiah was written in the 6th century era, i.e. the 500s BCE. And it was during this period of time that many Old Testament books were written, including the book of Deuteronomy. So the reference to Cyrus and the prediction of Cyrus in Isaiah chapter 44, notice it's chapter 44, right? This is in Deutero-Isaiah territory. This is an example of backdating a prophecy. This is the process where the prophecy of an event is created after it has already happened and then backdated to a prior time. So some author writing sometime after Cyrus conquered Babylon had his words added to those of Isaiah. Now, a lot of these tools that I learned from studying the Bible have application over to the Book of Mormon. And here, this becomes a problem for the Book of Mormon. Now, the Book of Mormon puts itself forth as a book that was written by a group of Jews who left Jerusalem just prior to the Babylonian captivity around 600 BCE. And with them, they took a book of scriptures that were inscribed on brass plates, itself somewhat of an anachronism, but they took a book with them that contained the writings of Isaiah with them. So if they took these writings with them and then had no more contact with Jerusalem, which is the way the Book of Mormon presents them, they would have had not the entire book of Isaiah, chapter 1 through 66 as we have it today, but they would have had the original Isaiah, chapter 1 through 39. They would not have had chapter 40 onward because those were created by Deutero-Isaiah and they would have been created at least 70 years after Lehi and his family left Jerusalem with the brass plates. So as is well known, the Book of Mormon quotes from these writings of Isaiah that Lehi and Nephi and his family took with him when they left Jerusalem prior to the Babylonian captivity. They quote from a number of chapters of Isaiah, and a number of those chapters are from the original Isaiah, which they would have theoretically, or at least as far as the book says, would have had with them when they left Jerusalem from chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah. The problem is that the Book of Mormon also quotes from chapters of Isaiah after chapter 39. In other words, the Book of Mormon quotes from Deutero-Isaiah, which means that according to the best scholarship and pretty much the unanimous verdict of Bible scholars now and for some time now, the Book of Mormon was quoting from scriptures that they could not have had and would not have had with them, even if the way the Book of Mormon presents the story is true and correct. Now, this idea of backdating prophecies can also be seen in the New Testament. We understand that the four Gospels 
were not written until many decades after Jesus lived and died. We also understand that the original versions of the four Gospels were not attributed to any particular person. In other words, they were written anonymously and only through tradition did one gospel be attributed to Matthew, another to Mark, another to Luke, and another to John. But most scholars understand and agree that because these gospels were written several decades after Jesus' death, the gospel writers were able to have Jesus predict his betrayal by Judas, the manner of his untimely death by crucifixion, and his resurrection. And they were able to put those words in Jesus's mouth because they knew that those words would be fulfilled in the later chapters of their gospel. So it is of course impossible at this point to say for sure that those are examples of backdated prophecy and yet they would fit the pattern. By the time they're writing the gospels, they know that Jesus was betrayed by Judas and therefore, when they're writing their Gospels, they can put in Jesus' mouth the fact that Jesus knew beforehand that he would be betrayed by Judas, and they can write that he prophesied of it before it happened. That would be an example of a backdated prophecy. Similarly, Jesus' prediction that he would be crucified before it happened. It is also possible that the predictions that Jesus has of the temple being destroyed in the Gospels may be backdated prophecies too. The temple in Jerusalem was not destroyed until 70 CE, or in other words, in the common era, approximately 40 years after Jesus died. So either Jesus actually did predict the future and the destruction of the temple, or the gospel writers who knew that the temple had been destroyed because they're writing it after the fact, were able to put those words into Jesus's mouth as a backdated prophecy. In a similar way, when we look at the Book of Mormon, Book of Mormon prophets have an intimate knowledge of Jesus's life, of his birth, that his mother would be named Mary, of his baptism at the hands of John the Baptist, of his ministry of the healings that he would do, of his crucifixion, of his resurrection, all in great detail and all in the mouths of authors and prophets who, according to the Book of Mormon, lived hundreds of years before Jesus. And indeed, the Book of Mormon prophets have a much greater and more detailed knowledge of Jesus before he was born than any prophets in the Old Testament had. So either the Book of Mormon prophets were given a great deal more information from God about Jesus before he came and were able to write it down as predictive of Jesus's birth, life, death, and resurrection. Or this is another example of a backdated prophecy because of course the Book of Mormon as we have it today was not dictated until the year 1829, long after Jesus lived and died. And the person who dictated the Book of Mormon, i.e. Joseph Smith, was certainly familiar with the Bible accounts of Jesus's birth, ministry, crucifixion, and resurrection. So it is certainly possible that this is another example of backdated prophecies, i.e. taking knowledge of what would happen in Jesus's life and then putting it in the mouths of prophets who lived hundreds of years before Jesus to show that in fact they were true prophets of God and that the Book of Mormon is indeed an inspired work of scripture. Now let's look at a related phenomenon with prophecy because another way that a prophecy can seemingly be fulfilled is if a narrative is embellished with fictional events in a way that is mindful of prophecies that have been made. 
In other words, there is a prophecy that has been made. It's written, let's say it's in the Old Testament, okay? And there is a certain prophecy that is made. And then we want to have something that's happening now be a fulfillment of that prophecy that's in the Old Testament. Well, what we can do is we can change and manipulate our account of what's happening now to make it more in line with the prophecy in the Old Testament to show that what's happening now is indeed a fulfillment of that prophecy. Let me give you an example because the classic guy in the New Testament who did this sort of thing was the author of the Gospel of Matthew. Over and over in the Gospel of Matthew, he's quoting from Old Testament scriptures and showing how it was that Jesus fulfilled those scriptures in his life and his ministry. In some cases, it's pretty clear that he's taking those scriptures from the Old Testament really out of context and applying them in a way that the original author would never have thought of applying it. And yet Matthew felt that that was justifiable in using these scriptures to show that Jesus was the Messiah. For example, in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 in the Old Testament, we have this prophecy. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now that's from a more modern translation. Let me read you the same prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 from the King James Version, because that's the one that we are probably more familiar with as Latter-day Saints. Okay, here we go. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Now the gospel writers end up having Jesus ride into Jerusalem triumphantly before his crucifixion on an ass and has his followers shouting Hosanna and laying palm fronds in his path in recognition of his being the king and fulfilling this prophecy. But the funny thing about it is that Matthew goes overboard because you'll notice in the King James Version at the end of it, it says that the king comes to Jerusalem. He's lowly. He's riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Now, this is an example of parallelism, which we find throughout the Old Testament. In prophecies, in predictions especially, it was common to say the same thing twice using similar wording. So when it says, and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass, it's really saying the same thing. It's not saying that the king is going to come riding upon an ass and also riding upon a colt, the foal of an ass. He's not going to come riding upon two beasts of burden. He's going to come riding upon one. This is just an example of parallelism saying the same thing twice. But notice what Matthew does with this. In Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 7, he takes this literally. The author of Matthew is apparently not aware that Zechariah is using a parallelism to say the same thing twice. And so therefore, the author of Matthew going overboard in order to make Jesus fulfill this prophecy from Zechariah has him riding into Jerusalem on two animals. So Matthew 21, verses 1 through 7. Let's go to that really quickly. Here we go. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. 
And if any man say aught unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled. See, he's going to make the connection with Zechariah 9, 9. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion. So now he's going to quote back to Zechariah 9, 9. Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, the king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass and the colt, and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. So they've got Jesus being put not only on the ass, but also upon the colt, the foal of the ass. It's unclear how Jesus is riding two animals at the same time. And yet this is how Matthew portrays it. And the reason Matthew portrays it is because he understands the parallelism in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, as meaning two animals and not just one animal. This is the lengths to which Matthew will go in order to have Jesus fulfill Old Testament prophecy. Now, the other gospel writers, Luke, Mark, and John, fulfill the prophecy by just having Jesus ride one animal to see this prophecy fulfilled. But Matthew goes all the way. And so this is a classic example of how it is that Matthew especially takes an isolated section or passage or scripture from the Old Testament, reinterprets it as prophecy of the coming Messiah, and then inserts a detail or manufactures a detail into his gospel narrative in order to see the Old Testament prophecy fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And this type of thing appears to happen over and over in Matthew, as well as in the other gospel writers. Now, I think it's possible to see something similar going on with the Book of Mormon. And that is taking a passage from the Old Testament, which itself is rather vague, ambiguous, and then manipulating it and enlarging and expanding upon it and clarifying it in order to make it predict something that happened much later on, something that happened as part of church history. So first we're going to look at the passage in Isaiah. It's Isaiah chapter 29, and we're going to look at verses 9 through 12. And this is the part that talks about the book that is sealed. I'm sure everybody knows what I'm talking about when I say that. Then we're going to look at the part in church history, which is supposed to be fulfilled by this prophecy. And then we're going to look at the Book of Mormon, which then takes this prophecy from Isaiah chapter 29 and expands incredibly upon it and clarifies it in such a way as to make it much more obvious that this passage from Isaiah, which really isn't that clear a prophecy of what happens in church history with Martin Harris and the Charles Antone episode, now the Book of Mormon is going to make it really clear that that's what Isaiah meant in the first place. So first, let's go to Isaiah 29, verses 9 through 12. I hope my voice holds out. Stay yourselves and wonder. Cry ye out and cry. They are drunken, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep and hath closed your eyes, the prophets and your rulers, the seers hath he covered. And the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. And the book is delivered to him that is not learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I am not learned. Now, that's the end of this prophecy. And that may be somewhat of a surprise to you because we are so familiar with how the Book of Mormon expands upon this prophecy that it's sometimes surprising to find out that that's all that Isaiah actually has to say about this incident. 
Now, a couple of comments about this. If we approach the book of Isaiah on its own terms and read this in context, what Isaiah appears to be talking about is a time period when there will be no prophecy, when there will be no vision, when there will be no understanding from God among the people, and that he is describing in poetic terms this situation. And also, I need to add that, of course, Isaiah did not know anything about a book because there were no such things as books in Isaiah's day, not the way we understand books. That's a much more modern idea that began appearing in codex form maybe around 2,000 years ago, but substantially after the time that Isaiah lived. In Isaiah's day, there were certainly writings in existence, but they were not in books. They were on scrolls. Scrolls were kept that had the writings of the Old Testament books in them, which is, again, another reason why it is that the idea of the brass plates in the Book of Mormon in 600 BC, with the writings of the prophets on them all collected, is somewhat of an anachronism. There were writings of prophets at that time, but they were kept on different scrolls. Scrolls could only be so long, and so generally, the different writings of the different prophets were kept on individual scrolls. And then if you wanted to consult the writings of a certain prophet, you had to pick up that scroll, open it up, and find the place that you were looking for. Now, sometimes, of course, those scrolls were sealed, and they were done in order to safeguard what was kept in the writing inside the scrolls. If a scroll was sealed, you couldn't open it up and read it without breaking the seal. So when Isaiah is talking about the vision of all is becoming to you as the words of a book that is sealed, well, he's talking about a scroll and a scroll being sealed because a scroll that is sealed cannot be read. So he's talking about this is like a document that cannot be read, a scroll that cannot be read. So let me go to this new revised standard version that I have. And let me read this to you so you can understand what it's talking about. There, instead of scroll, it talks about a document. It says, the vision of all this, it doesn't say the vision of all, the vision of all this has become for you like the words of a sealed document. If it is given to those who can read with the command, read this, they say, we cannot, for it is sealed. And if it is given to those who cannot read, saying, read this, they say, we cannot read. So the idea isn't that the person who is learned cannot read it, but the person who is unlearned can read it, which is the way it's come to be understood within Mormonism and the way it will be repurposed in the Book of Mormon itself as what I think is an example of a backdated prophecy. The idea originally is simply that these are the words of a book that is sealed, a scroll that is sealed, which nobody can read. The learned would be able to read it because they're learned, right? They have the education to read it, but they can't read it because it's sealed. And those who are not learned can't read it because they're not learned. They couldn't read even if it weren't sealed. So nobody can read this document. Nobody can read this scroll. That's the idea behind this prophecy or this statement in Isaiah, which is in chapter 29. Technically speaking, this is not so much a prophecy as it is a poetic metaphor. The entirety of chapter 29 of Isaiah talks about a time when there will be no communication from God, when even the seers and the prophets will not be able to receive revelation from God. And Isaiah likens this to a scroll that is sealed. Nobody can read it. The learned can't read it. The unlearned cannot read it. Nobody can read it. Nobody can access the will of God, which is what the writing on the scroll is likened to. And yet what happened was, is that in 1828, Martin Harris went and took some of the characters that Joseph Smith said were on the gold plates 
And Joseph Smith's transcription of those characters took him to New York, and he returns with the story of having met with Charles Antone, a professor of ancient languages, who lived in New York at the time. And what Martin Harris apparently says is that he showed Charles Antone the transcript of the characters produced by Joseph Smith and the translation of those characters, and that Charles Antone said, hey, those are legitimate characters, and this translation of those characters is correct as well. Now, there's a number of issues related to this story which are problematic. First off, the idea that anybody, including Charles Antone, could have read Egyptian at the time period. Now, they could have identified real Egyptian characters because those were known, but Egyptian was not a language that was able to be translated in 1828 at the time this is alleged to have happened, not even by Charles Anto, not even by the smartest guy in the world, and the most knowledgeable guy in the world couldn't have done what Martin Harris says Charles Antone did with his transcript. Second, this was not regular Egyptian. This was supposed to be reformed Egyptian that the Book of Mormon had on the plates, and it was a reformed Egyptian that nobody could read in the world, and that ostensibly, even today, if it were produced, nobody could read it because it was a reformed kind of Egyptian. It wasn't regular Egyptian. It was reformed by the Nephites. Remember, it is the Book of Mormon itself that calls the characters Reformed Egyptian. And that is in one verse, in Mormon chapter 9, verse 32, which says that the characters which are called among us the Reformed Egyptian were handed down and altered by us according to our manner of speech, and that none other people knoweth our language. And another problem is, is that Charles Antone, after he found that Martin Harris had been relating their meeting, which they did actually have apparently, but relating it one way came out and vociferously contradicted Martin Harris's account of what happened in the meeting saying, no, it didn't happen that way at all. It happened a very different way. Thank you very much, Martin Harris. But this is the way the story is related in the history of the church. And it's found in the Pearl of Great Price, Joseph Smith history, the extract there in verses 63 through 65. And this is the way Joseph Smith at least characterizes what Martin Harris said after he came back in the month of February, 1828. Sometime in this month of February, and once again, it's 1828. It doesn't say that in the history of the church, but that was the year of 1828. That'll be important. The aforementioned Mr. Martin Harris came to our place, got the characters which I had drawn off the plates, and started with him to the city of New York. For what took place relative to him and the characters, I refer to his own account of the circumstances as he related them to me after his return, which was as follows. And now, in 1838, Joseph Smith is apparently quoting Martin Harris, but it's not clear that he's quoting a document written by Martin Harris. I think he's really just sort of quoting what he recalls Martin Harris as having said to them, which would have been 10 years before Joseph Smith was writing this history in 1838. Anyway, this is how he relates what Martin Harris said. I went to the city of New York and presented the characters which had been translated with the translation thereof to Professor Charles Antone, a gentleman celebrated for his literary attainments, and indeed he was. Professor Antone stated that the translation was correct. See, Martin Harris is saying Professor Antone was saying the translation was correct when actually there's no way that Charles Antone would have been able to actually say such a thing, at least not truthfully. So he says Professor Antone stated that the translation was correct more so than any he had before seen translated from the Egyptian. I then showed him those which were not yet translated, and he said that they were Egyptian, but he doesn't say they were just Egyptian. He says they were Egyptian, Chaldaic, which is Babylonian, Assyriac, and Arabic. Now, it's not clear at all 
why it is that even Martin Harris, who's giving the faithful version of this encounter with Charles Anton, is having Charles Anton say that the characters that Joseph Smith had transcribed were not only Egyptian, but they're also Chaldaic, Assyriac, and Arabic. And he said, Charles Anton said, that they were true characters. So if this part of the story is correct, and as a believing Mormon, I'm kind of obliged to accept what Martin Harris says. I mean, it is in the scriptures in the Pearl of Great Price. We've got to wonder why it is that these characters are identified by Charles Anton, the characters that Joseph Smith wrote off ostensibly from the gold plates, that he says that they are Egyptian, Chaldaic, Assyriac, and Arabic. In other words, they're a hodgepodge of different characters from different languages, from the Egyptian, from the Babylonian, from the Assyrian, and from the Arabic languages. Why would all those hodgepodge of characters be on the gold plates? Why would they be in the characters that Joseph Smith copied from the gold plates and that Martin Harris took to New York? Nevertheless, Martin Harris says that Charles Anton said that these were true characters. In other words, they were legitimate characters from those four different languages. I mean, there's nothing about the Book of Mormon that suggests that anything in the Book of Mormon would be written in Babylonian or Chaldaic characters or Assyrian characters or Arabic characters. Egyptian, sure, Reformed Egyptian, but not Babylonian, Assyrian, and Arabic Going on, he gave me a certificate. So this is Martin Harris saying that Charles Anton gave him a certificate certifying to the people of Palmyra that they were true characters and that the translation of such of them as had been translated was also correct. I took the certificate and put it into my pocket. It was just leaving the house when Mr. Anton called me back and asked me how the young man found out that there were gold plates in the place where he found them. I answered that an angel of God had revealed it unto him. And now for the big climax, which we all know in verse 65. He then said to me, let me see that certificate. I accordingly took it out of my pocket and gave it to him when he took it and tore it to pieces, saying that there was no such thing now as ministering of angels and that if I would bring the plates to him, he would translate them. I informed him that part of the plates were sealed. Now, not all the plates, right? But part of the plates were sealed because we know that the two thirds, the bottom two thirds of the gold plates were purported to be sealed, were described as being sealed and that I was forbidden to bring them because Joseph Smith isn't going to let him bring the plates. He can bring a transcription of some of the characters or the translation of them, but not the plates themselves. Joseph Smith's not an idiot and that I was forbidden to bring them. He replied, Charles Anton replied, I cannot read a sealed book. I left him and went to Dr. Mitchell, who was another scholar in New York, who sanctioned what Professor Anton had said respecting both the characters and the translation. So apparently there's two witnesses, not only Charles Anton, but also the less mentioned Dr. Mitchell. And of course, Dr. Mitchell, there's no story with him saying that he wrote up a certificate. So it's not quite so dramatic. But once again, even Dr. Mitchell, the same as Professor Anton, would not be able to vouch for an accurate translation of Egyptian characters because nobody in the world could do that in 1828. Now, a year later, a year later in 1829, Joseph Smith is now dictating the Book of Mormon as we have it today. Remember in 1828, he was dictating what became the lost 116 pages with Martin Harris. And that's the context in which Martin Harris goes to New York with those characters and the translation of them, the transcription you remember. But now with all this in mind, with Isaiah 29 in mind, which we've talked about, that passage about the sealed book, right? And with the story now that Martin Harris has come back from New York with, or at least Joseph Smith's version of Martin Harris's account of what happened in New York. Now, 
the Book of Mormon is being translated, and Joseph Smith is going to rework this translation from Isaiah 29 and elaborate upon it in such a way that it is much more clearly a fulfillment of what happened with Martin Harris and Charles Anton in New York. And so what the Book of Mormon is going to do here is going to elaborate upon Isaiah 29 in order to make it much more accurately predict what happened in New York with Charles Anton. This is in 2 Nephi chapter 27, and it starts in verse 4 with that passage we read from Isaiah 29. For behold, all ye that doeth iniquity, stay yourselves and wonder, for ye shall cry out and cry, yea, ye shall be drunken, but not with wine, ye shall stagger, but not with strong drink. For behold, the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep. For behold, ye have closed your eyes, and ye have rejected the prophets and your rulers, and the seers hath he covered because of your iniquity. That's Isaiah chapter 29, verses 9 and 10. And now it comes to the part that we quoted about the vision of all is becoming to you as the words of a book that is sealed. And now the Book of Mormon in reworking Isaiah 29 makes it much more applicable to what happened to Martin Harris, starting in verse 6 of 2 Nephi 27. And it shall come to pass that the Lord God shall bring forth unto you the words of a book. See, that's completely added. And they shall be the words of them which have slumbered, that's added as well. And behold, the book shall be sealed, and in the book shall be a revelation from God from the beginning of the world to the ending thereof. Wherefore, because of the things which are sealed up, the things which are sealed shall not be delivered in the day of the wickedness and abominations of the people. Wherefore, the book shall be kept from them. But the book shall be delivered unto a man. Now, this is going to be Joseph Smith within the context of the Book of Mormon prophesying about Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon. But the book shall be delivered unto a man, and he shall deliver the words of the the book, which are the words of those who have slumbered in the dust, and he shall deliver these words unto another. Now notice how specific this is, and all of this is an elaboration on Isaiah 29. This is not found in Isaiah 29. It's an elaboration of Isaiah 29. So here we've got the man who is Joseph Smith, and the book is delivered to him. He doesn't deliver the book to another man who's going to be Martin Harris, right? But he delivers the words of the book to another man. That's the transcript with the characters that he gives to Martin Harris to take to New York. So once again in verse 9 of 2 Nephi 27, but the book shall be delivered unto a man, that's Joseph Smith, and he shall deliver the words of the book, which are the words of those who have slumbered in the dust, i.e. the Nephites, and he shall deliver these words unto another. That's going to be Martin Harris. But the words which are sealed, he shall not deliver. Okay, that's the two-thirds of the Book of Mormon, right? He's not going to deliver those words because he can't even open those. This is from the top one-third of the Book of Mormon, this transcript. But the words which are sealed, he shall not deliver, neither shall he deliver the book. For the book shall be sealed by the power of God, and the revelation which was sealed shall be kept in the book until the own due time of the Lord, that they may come forth. For behold, they reveal all things from the foundation of the world unto the end thereof. Now that's verse 10, and I'm going to skip down a bit because it's going to talk about the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon. But now in verse 15, we get back to the sealed book. But behold, it shall come to pass that the Lord God shall say unto him, to whom he shall deliver the book, that's Joseph Smith, remember, take these words which are not sealed and deliver them to another, that he may show them unto the learned. Okay, they're going to get to Charles Anton, the learned, right? That he may show them unto the learned, saying, read this, I pray thee. And the learned shall say, Bring hither the book, 
and I will read them. Remember, in Isaiah, it just says, I can't read a book that's sealed. But no, in this reworking of Isaiah 29 in the Book of Mormon, it says, and the learned shall say, bring hither the book, and I will read them. And now, because of the glory of the world and to get gain, will they say this, and not for the glory of God. And the man shall say, I cannot bring the book for it is sealed. That's Martin Harris again, right? That man. And the man shall say, I cannot bring the book for it is sealed. Then shall the learned say, I cannot read it. See how this matches what it is that Martin Harris reports happening in New York the year before in 1828. Here's the Book of Mormon in 1829 being dictated by Joseph Smith and reworking and elaborating Isaiah 29 to make it much more accurately prophesy what happened in New York with Charles Anton. Then shall the learned say, I cannot read it. Wherefore, it shall come to pass that the Lord God will deliver again the book and the words thereof to him that is not learned. Now, once again, notice the delivering again of the book and the words thereof to him that is not learned, which within itself suggests the Book of Mormon or the gold plates being taken by the angel after the lost 116 pages and once again being redelivered to Joseph Smith. The Lord God will deliver again the book and the words thereof to him that is not learned. And the man that is not learned, i.e. Joseph Smith, shall say, I am not learned. But it doesn't leave it there as it does in Isaiah with the unlearned person being unable to read the words because he can't read. He's not educated enough. Instead, verse 20 goes on to make it applicable now to Joseph Smith. Then shall the Lord God say unto him, The learned shall not read them, for they have rejected them, and I am able to do mine own work. Wherefore, thou shalt read the words which I shall give unto thee. So Joseph Smith will, even though he's unlearned, will be able to translate the Book of Mormon and read those words. And so we can see how the original brief and somewhat vague and out of context passage from Isaiah 29 was then elaborated extensively in 2 Nephi 27 in order to more fully allow it to predict with clarity, detail, and precision what had occurred, or at least allegedly occurred, with Martin Harris and Charles Anton the year prior to the dictation of the Book of Mormon in 1828. In addition to this, and a little bit tangentially, it is frequently thought that Joseph Smith produced the Book of Mormon. It was published in March of 1830. The church was organized in April of 1830, and shortly after that, Joseph Smith received the commandment from God to interpret or translate the Bible, thus initiating the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, sometimes called the Inspired Version, where Joseph Smith went through the entire Bible and made what he called inspired changes, revisions, and deletions to the biblical text. We can see that actually something along those very lines was happening prior to that commandment to conduct the Joseph Smith translation, and that it was actually even happening in the pages of the Book of Mormon itself, because here Isaiah 29 is being revamped, and indeed one could say there's being an inspired translation or a Joseph Smith translation of Isaiah 29, even within the Book of Mormon. So this inspired translation of the Bible or the idea or the process was in effect and ongoing and occurring even before the command comes through Joseph Smith to start the official inspired translation of the Bible. Speaking of another tangent, and one that's not exactly along the lines of backdating prophecies, is what is sometimes called the long and short ending of the Gospel of Mark. Now, some of you may know what I'm talking about. This has to do with what Bible scholars have found out. And once again, this is not a recent discovery, but there are many, many, many manuscripts of early versions of Mark 
And some that are not so early, there are earlier versions and later versions. And so the idea is that the earlier versions of Mark probably more closely approximate the original version of Mark. Of course, there is no original manuscript of Mark that's in existence. But we feel that the earlier the manuscripts are, which are copied from the original manuscript, the more likely they are to more closely approximate what was in the original. And what Bible scholars have discovered is that the earliest versions of the Gospel of Mark have a short ending. It has 16 chapters. It's already a short Gospel, but the very ending of it is cut off from the way we have it today. So like the other three Gospels, Mark recounts the visit of Mary Magdalene and her companions to the tomb of Jesus early on Sunday morning. When they arrive, they find that the stone that was at the entrance to the tomb has been removed and a young man, now notice that's a young man, not an angel, tells them this, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. Now notice this because this is the last sentence of the earliest version of Mark. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing, period. End of verse 8 in Mark chapter 16 and the end of the gospel of Mark as it was originally written, at least as it is reflected in the earliest manuscripts. There the gospel simply ends. In the earliest versions, Mark gives no accounts of anyone seeing Jesus after his resurrection, as do Matthew, Luke, and John. In fact, according to Mark, any future sightings of Jesus will be in the north, in Galilee, not in Jerusalem. So what do the later manuscripts of Mark have? Well, they have a longer ending, and this is the ending that is reflected in your Bibles today. Because even though the earliest manuscripts don't have this longer ending, it was added to later manuscripts. It became prevalent. It was copied and recopied. It became very popular, and it ended up being incorporated into the Gospel of Mark itself, even though it was not there originally. And here is that long ending, which is not in the earliest manuscripts. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, that's Jesus, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. Once again, this is in the long ending of Mark. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And there, the author of Mark, or at least this long ending, appears to be borrowing from Luke and the story of the two travelers on the road to a mouse. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And this appears to be borrowing from the story in Luke as well. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. The long ending goes on. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. There he appears to be borrowing from the final verses of Matthew. And then it continues with these famous words, And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. 
So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and set down at the right hand of God. And there he appears to be borrowing from Acts chapter one. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So that is the long ending of Mark, the ending that we have in our Bibles, but the ending that was not there in the earliest manuscripts. And so therefore there is a general consensus among most biblical scholars that it probably was not present in the original version of Mark either. It was added hundreds of years after the fact because the original short ending of Mark was considered to be unsatisfying and incomplete. They didn't want to have a gospel ending with nobody seeing Jesus after he was resurrected. In fact, Bruce Metzger, a renowned Bible scholar, says in his book, A Textual Commentary on the Greek New Testament, this is what he says about the evidence. Clement of Alexandria and Oregon, who were church fathers who lived in the early third century, show no knowledge of the existence of these verses, i.e. in the long ending of Mark. Furthermore, Eusebius and Jerome attest that the passage was absent from almost all Greek copies of Mark that were known to them. So it seems clear that it was hundreds of years after the fact that this long ending was added. So why am I going into all this detail? Well, first off, it's a fascinating story as to how it is that something that was not in an original copy of Mark ended up being added to the Bible. And this is not the only example of this type of thing. I'm not going to go into the other examples now because I don't want to get too far afield. The reason I bring this up is because the long ending of Mark is quoted in the Book of Mormon. It's quoted in the Book of Mormon in the Book of Mormon, chapter 9, verse 24. And this will sound very familiar to you. Here's the quote. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Period. End of quote from Mormon chapter 9, verse 24. So this creates quite a thorny issue for the Book of Mormon. Now, it is problematic enough that the Book of Mormon in the New World quotes from the Gospel of Mark that was written in the Old World when there's no way that the people in the New World would have had access to that Gospel of Mark, even though in this case, the Book of Mormon represents it as being written several hundred years after the Gospel of Mark was written. This is found in the Book of Mormon. So this is the latter part of the Book of Mormon chronology. So that part is problematic enough. And it's also problematic enough that it doesn't just paraphrase Mark. It actually quotes it in the King James Version English that was available to Joseph Smith. And it was not available prior to 1611 when the King James Version was published. But finally, the coup de grace on this when it comes to problematic is that the Book of Mormon ends up quoting the long ending of Mark that was apparently never a part of the original Gospel of Mark in the first place. So the Book of Mormon quotes from the King James Version of the long ending of Mark, which itself was a forgery and added to the Gospel of Mark several hundred years after the fact. That's how problematic this can become for the Book of Mormon. Now, I want to go back to the main thesis of this podcast dealing with backdated prophecies because the classic example of this, generally all Bible scholars agree with this, the classic example of this is found in the book of Daniel and specifically in the book of Daniel chapter 11. This is sometimes called Daniel's final vision. Now, according to the book of Daniel, the book of Daniel sets this vision or situates it in the third year of Cyrus, 
king of Persia. Now you remember Cyrus is the king of Persia who overthrew the Babylonian empire 70 years after the Jews were taken into captivity in Babylon and allowed them to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. So this is the time period that Daniel's final vision is set. And yet scholars are agreed that actually this vision was written long after the fact because the vision contains so many details of what happened after Cyrus and gets them historically correct that it appears obvious that this is a backdated prophecy. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details of this vision, though it's very fascinating. I just want to hit the main points because chapter 11, which is the centerpiece of this revelation, the final vision, gives a broad sweep of history from the 6th century BCE to the second century. So in other words, this is prophesying, at least according to the terms of the book of Daniel, it's prophesying of things from the sixth century all the way down to the second century BCE. That's 400 years later after Daniel is supposed to have written this. And it goes all the way down to the time of Alexander the Great, who died when he was 35 years old, I believe. He had no children. And so his empire was left to his four generals. And they made war amongst themselves. And eventually, there were two generals left. There was the Seleucids, who lived in Syria and controlled that area of the world. And there were the Ptolemies, who controlled Egypt. And indeed, the book of Daniel prophesies of these two individual kingdoms, one being a king of the north and one being a king of the south. The king of the south or the kingdom of the south being Egypt and the one to the north being Syria. And not only does the book of Daniel prophesy about that, it also prophesies about one of the kings of the Seleucids whose name was Antiochus the fourth, also known Antiochus Epiphanes. He was one of the kings of the Seleucids and he was extremely hard on the Jews. He did not allow them to practice their sacrifices. In fact, he brought in a statue of Jupiter into the Jewish temple and profaned it that way and also by having pigs, which of course were unclean animals, by having pigs sacrificed on the altar in the Jewish temple. And this is what is referred to in the book of Daniel as the abomination of desolation. And this is something that was done in and around the year 168 BCE, this is when Antiochus did these horrible things to the Jews in their temple in Jerusalem. And this is what is prophesied by Daniel in great detail and accurately. But in chapter 11, verses 40 through 45, which finish the chapter, it continues with a prophecy, but now it starts getting things wrong. In other words, it starts prophesying of things that did not actually happen historically. Verses 40 through 45 finish the chapter with the prophecy that Antiochus Epiphanes would make war once again against Egypt and would die in Judea. This did not actually happen. There was no second war against Egypt, and Antiochus ends up dying not in Judea, but he died in Persia or in Babylon. That's what the historical record tells us. So when scholars look at this, what they look at in Daniel is a backdated prophecy. It's put in the mouth of Daniel, who lived about 530 BCE when he's supposed to be making this prophecy, according to the book of Daniel and the way it presents things. But actually, it was written in the second century BCE 
after the things that Daniel prophesies accurately actually had transpired and the prophecy is backdated and put into Daniel's mouth to show what a great prophet he was. But not only that, at the point where the prophecies of Daniel stop being accurate and start being inaccurate, in other words, stop reflecting history as it really happened and start not reflecting history as it really happened, that is the point at which scholars believe the author of these additional prophecies lived because he knew what had happened historically because he'd already lived through it. So then he puts it back in Daniel's mouth. He did not know what would happen in the future, but he continues to make prophecies of things that were really in the future for this anonymous writer, but that's where he starts getting things wrong. And so scholars are generally agreed that the anonymous author of this backdated prophecy of Daniel lived right around 168 or 167 BCE. So as I say, that is the classic example in the Bible of a backdated prophecy. And that is how scholars are able to roughly approximate, or in this case, really pretty closely pinpoint the time at which the person lived who created this prophecy and then backdated it into the book of Daniel. The reason I bring this up is because as I was learning about this 15 years ago, I started getting an uneasy feeling in the pit of my stomach because I recognized that there was something very similar that was going on in the Book of Mormon itself, and specifically in the vision of Nephi, which is recorded in the Book of Mormon, 1 Nephi, chapters 11 through 14. Now, the text of the Book of Mormon puts this prophecy approximately 600 years before Christ. And yet, as we know, the Book of Mormon did not appear in any kind of published form until 1829, when it was dictated by Joseph Smith and then published for the first time the following year in 1830. So we have a book, the Book of Mormon, that first appears in 1830, but it is quoting prophecies from Nephi who lived 600 years before Christ or before the Common Era. Now for chapters 11, 12, and 13, I'm just going to look at the headnotes of each chapter. I'm not going to go into detail, but we will see that all of these things that are seen by Nephi 600 years before Jesus Christ came are things that Nephi could not have known except by divine revelation and the gift of prophecy. But it would have been an easy matter for Joseph Smith or whoever wrote the Book of Mormon when it came off the press in 1830 All of these things would have been known by a person living at that time period. Chapter 11, the heading says, Nephi sees the spirit of the Lord and is shown in vision the tree of life. He sees the mother of the son of God and learns of the condescension of God. That's Jesus coming down to earth. Or actually in the original book of Mormon, that was God coming down to earth. It was later modified to be the Son of God. But going on with a heading, he sees the baptism, ministry, and crucifixion of the Lamb of God. He sees also the call and ministry of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So this is a detailed prophecy that Nephi is getting 600 years before Christ, but it's first being published 1830 years after Christ. Once again, details not knowable by Nephi, but definitely knowable and known to Joseph Smith and everybody in his community. Chapter 12, the heading says, Nephi sees in vision the land of promise, the righteousness, iniquity, and downfall of its inhabitants, the coming of the Lamb of God among them, how the twelve disciples and the twelve apostles shall judge Israel, the loathsome and filthy state of those who dwindle in unbelief. So basically here, what Nephi is seeing is what's going to happen 
in the Book of Mormon. And the story that's told in the Book of Mormon regarding the Lamanites dwindling in unbelief and also Jesus appearing to the Nephites shortly after his resurrection. And once again, all that part of the Book of Mormon had already been written or dictated prior to 1st Nephi. Remember, the 116 pages covered up to around the beginning of the Book of Mosiah. And when Joseph Smith recommenced his dictation of the Book of Mormon as we have it today, scholars are pretty much agreed he started with Mosiah and went all the way to the end of the Book of Mormon and then began retranslating from the beginning up to Mosiah and finishing probably with the words of Mormon or right around that point. So as of the time this prophecy is being dictated in the Book of Mormon and 1st Nephi, everything else that's already happened in the Book of Mormon has already been dictated. So within the context of the chronology of the Book of Mormon, what's being dictated here as a prophecy of what would happen among the Lamanites and the Nephites in the visit of Jesus had already been dictated prior to the dictation of this prophecy that it would happen later on. I hope that's clear enough. Going on to chapter 13 is where things get really interesting because in chapter 13 now, Nephi goes even beyond Jesus and he goes hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after Jesus and starts being able to pinpoint high points in Western civilization as it applies especially to the Americas. And the interesting point is that he's very specific about things that happen right up to the time of Joseph Smith and when he lived. But after that, it starts getting very hazy. It's just like what happened with Daniel. The person who wrote that lived around 167 or 168 BCE. And therefore, they were able to backdate a prophecy into the mouth of Daniel that covered very specifically and with amazing detail things that had happened up to 168 BCE, but after that they started getting it wrong. And you can understand, of course, why that would be. So let me just hit those high points that are contained in 1 Nephi 13. First, Nephi sees the formation among the Gentiles of a great and abominable church. Now, this is never specifically identified as the Catholic Church in the Book of Mormon, but it was certainly the common understanding of many Latter-day Saint leaders, such as David O. McKay and Bruce R. McConkie, and pretty much everybody up until the point a few decades ago when it stopped being politically correct to identify the great and abominable church as the Catholic Church. So we've sort of steered away from that now, but it really appears from the context that that's what it's talking about, the creation of the Catholic Church. It also talks about Columbus discovering America. And that's in verse 10. And it came to pass that I looked and beheld many waters, and they divided the Gentiles from the seed of my brethren. So these are the Gentiles over in Europe. And it came to pass that the angel said unto me, Behold, the wrath of God is upon the seed of thy brethren. And I looked and beheld a man among the Gentiles who was separated from the seed of my brethren by the many waters. And I beheld the Spirit of God that it came down and wrought upon the man. And he went forth upon the many waters even unto the seed of my brethren who were in the promised land. So in this way, the Book of Mormon prophesies about Columbus discovering America in 1492. Not satisfied with that, the Book of Mormon now goes on and prophesies about the pilgrims in verse 13. And it came to pass that I beheld the Spirit of God that it wrought upon other Gentiles, and they went forth out of captivity upon the many waters." 
And now, of course, the colonies are created in the United States. And so verse 14 goes on to say, And it came to pass that I beheld many multitudes of the Gentiles upon the land of promise. And I beheld the wrath of God, that it was upon the seed of my brethren. This would be the Lamanites. This would be the Indians or the Native Americans of Joseph Smith's day. And they were scattered before the Gentiles and were smitten. So he sees the European settlers scattering and smiting the Indians or the Native Americans of Joseph Smith's day. These are things that had happened and were well familiar to Joseph. Joseph Smith, but would not have been knowable to Nephi 600 years before Christ, except by divine means, of course. And the vision goes on to describe how well the Gentiles prospered, i.e. the American or English colonists in America. And I beheld the spirit of the Lord that it was upon the Gentiles, and they did prosper and obtain the land for their inheritance. And I beheld that they were white and exceedingly fair and beautiful, like unto my people before they were slain. And it came to pass that I, Nephi, beheld that the Gentiles, who had gone forth out of captivity, did humble themselves before the Lord, and the power of the Lord was with them. So they are a religious group of people. But now he actually sees the Revolutionary War. Verse 17, And I beheld that their mother Gentiles were gathered together upon the waters, and upon the land also, to battle against them. And who wins this war? Well, of course, the colonists win this war. Verse 18, And I beheld that the power of God was with them, and also that the wrath of God was upon all those that were gathered together against them to battle. And I, Nephi, beheld that the Gentiles that had gone out of captivity were delivered by the power of God out of the hands of all other nations. And now Nephi sees the Bible being carried forth among the new Americans in the American Republic after they won the Revolutionary War. And it came to pass that I, Nephi, beheld that they did prosper in the land, and I beheld a book, and it was carried forth among them. And now we're going to go ahead and find out that this book is the Bible, and it's also going to predict the Book of Mormon going forth among them, and going to give some prophecies about the Book of Mormon and the Bible. But after that, after that point, And remember, of course, the Revolutionary War started in 1775, and it didn't get over until 1783. So this is just a matter of a very few decades. This is about 20 years before Joseph Smith was born that these events transpired. And now if you read the rest of the chapter, 1 Nephi 13, things start getting very vague and ambiguous. The prophecies lose their specific character, that they have events that it describes that occurred before Joseph Smith, And now after Joseph Smith, it starts getting very loosey-goosey as far as its predictive power. And finally, in verse 14, it talks about the winding up scene. And it doesn't get into a lot of detail, but it basically punts over to the revelation of John. And it says that Nephi saw all this stuff, but he was commanded not to write it because those things were already written by this guy named John, who was a disciple of Jesus Christ, who would live 600 years in Nephi's future. And that therefore, Nephi wasn't supposed to write them because John was going to write them. So that's what I mean by it punts to the book of Revelation. And that's where it says in chapter 14, verse 20, And the angel said unto me, Behold, one of the twelve apostles of the Lamb, behold, he shall see and write the remainder of these things, yea, and also many things which have been, and he shall also write concerning the end of the world. And then if you skip over to verse 27, it identifies the name. And I, Nephi, heard and bear record that the name of the apostle of the Lamb was John, according to the word of the angel. Now that runs into a bit of trouble too, as far as modern scholarship of the New Testament, because even though modern scholars recognize that the person who wrote the revelation of John does identify himself in the book itself 
as having the name John, the book does not identify him as being the same John who was the apostle of Jesus Christ. In fact, most scholars today believe that they would have been two completely separate people with the same name. They're not the same John at all. And yet the Book of Mormon specifically identifies the John who wrote the book of Revelation as being the apostle John, one of the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. So there, the Book of Mormon is in conflict with modern scholarship as well. Okay, so I am just about done with this podcast. I've covered the material I wanted to cover. My voice is about to give out on me as well, so it's probably good timing as far as that goes. But the main thing I wanted to point out is that we have in the Book of Mormon in 1 Nephi a prophecy or a vision that is in many respects equatable to the final vision that Daniel has in his book in Daniel chapter 11. And in the same way that scholars can look at the book of Daniel and pretty much approximate when it was the person who wrote that prophecy and backdated it to Daniel's mouth, when that person, that anonymous person lived, even in the same way, a scholar, let's say 200 years from now, or even today, looking at the book of Mormon with no particular ax to grind, they can look at the book of Mormon and do the same thing. Because the Book of Mormon has the same kind of fingerprints and the same kind of evidence with regard to this backdated prophecy, as does the final vision in Daniel. A scholar looking at the Book of Mormon now or hundreds of years in the future can look back at the Book of Mormon, can see that it is very predictive and very descriptive and very specific and very precise in the predictions it makes about the Catholic Church, about Columbus discovering America, about the American colonists prospering in the land and persecuting the Native Americans, and also the Revolutionary War, which the colonists win. Up to that point, these prophecies in the Book of Mormon are very specific and very accurate. But after that, they start becoming very vague and hazy. So just looking at the Book of Mormon text itself and applying these tools of textual analysis that are used by scholars of the Bible, we can look at the Book of Mormon and say, with pretty good certainty that it was written by an individual who lived shortly after the Revolutionary War, that this person probably lived in America because it seems to have a pro-America slant in the way it's described. So it's written by an American shortly after the Revolutionary War. And we can actually get even more specific than that, because if we look not only at Nephi's vision in 1 Nephi 11 through 14, but also include in our analysis 2 Nephi chapter 27, the reworking of Isaiah 29, which we talked about in detail earlier, we can see that the most specific and detailed prophecy in the Book of Mormon has to do with Martin Harris's trip to Charles Antone in February of 1828. And after that, the Book of Mormon has a dearth of specific prophecies that we can match up to actual history. So using those same tools of textual criticism that Bible scholars use in the book of Daniel to date his final vision to 168 or 167 BC, we can look at the fact that the most detailed prophecy and the last detailed prophecy in the book of Mormon that actually happened occurred in 1828, and we can date the coming forth of the book of Mormon to 1829 or 1830. So what I am saying is that even if we did not know that the Book of Mormon was dictated in 1829 and it was published in 1830, just from the text of the Book of Mormon itself and the backdated prophecies that it contains, when we compare that with history, we can, with a high degree of certainty, date the creation of the Book of Mormon to 1829 or 1830. This is a vindication of of the tools of textual analysis that scholars use to date the book of Daniel, at least the final vision of the book of Daniel, 
because we see that those methods work equally well when dating the Book of Mormon. Well, that's about all that I have for today. That's been this podcast on the fascinating subject of backdating prophecies. I hope that this has been of interest to you, and I hope that if you haven't done so before, you will go to RadioFreeMormon.org right now and make a monthly contribution today. $10 a month, $25 a month, whatever you can afford. Please do that today. Your contributions will help keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.